Well, a good morning. Good morning. Not, a, not the, the most uh, fun of topics to talk about. Those, uh, we should begin by introducing ourselves. I'm Claudio Consuegra. I'm the Family Ministries Director for the North American Division. And my wife, Pam, is the Associate Director of the, of the uh, department as well. And those who know us know that uh, we enjoy using humor, but there's nothing funny about this. So there's nothing that we can laugh about, and that makes it a little bit more difficult to present, but we'll do our best. And we also want to tell you ahead of time that um, Claudia and I have made a commitment that when we make presentations, we make them very practical, very down to earth, because our purpose is to touch that member that sits in our pews each week, regardless of the educational level they have. And so we want to start by saying that this is not going to be a deep presentation based in theory, et cetera. It's going to be down to earth so that the, the individual that's currently experiencing domestic violence will understand this regardless of where he or she is in life, regardless of their educational background. The first step in ending violence, domestic violence, is educating both the victim as well as everybody else. We, we really don't know what to do, or if we don't know what to do, we don't know how to intervene. So that's the point or the purpose of our presentation, to give you a, an overall uh, picture of domestic violence and give you some ideas as to how you can end it if you're the victim or how you can help victims end it uh, by supporting them and encouraging them. Because it's one thing to say, uh, in fact, is what I always say, the worst thing anyone can hear is, well, why don't you just leave? If it was that easy, they would have left. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but that's, that actually puts the person on the defensive, sort of to um, explain the reasons why, and in some ways defending the abuser, if you want to say it that way. Now, before we begin, we got to tell you that uh, we're going to use a stereotype. Uh, violence toward men is about the same, at the same level as violence toward women. It's just that it's apparently gr grossly underreported. So we're not going to talk about violence toward men today. We're going to use the typical scenario, which is violence toward women. And, uh, and one of the reasons, obviously, again, is because uh, that's been happening for, a lot, of, uh, for a, lot, a lot of years, for a long time. And even though there are interventions, even though there's education, even though there are programs, it continues to happen. It continues to happen. So again, we're just going to take the one side. And so when you hear breaking the cycle of violence, uh, you can also try to picture violence toward men, violence toward parents. You know, it's happening in the sandwich generation, those who have parents living with us, as well as children living with us. Apparently, uh, uh, violence toward their parents is taking place. So just think in your minds in general terms. But again, we will use the, the typical scenario of a woman being uh, hurt or violated by uh, someone. We talk from experience. Uh, no, we haven't experienced that ourselves. <laughs> I'm so glad you clarified that, honey. <laughs> and I say from experience because my sister was physically abused by her husband for over 10 years of their marriage. In fact, uh, I have to confess, and my wife knows this, whenever I land in Florida, a lot of memories come, to, uh, come back to my mind because it was the first, Miami was the first city that uh, we arrived to in, uh, from Colombia, South America, where I come from. 
And, and it, it was the first day that I became aware that my sister was being physically abused while pregnant from, by her husband who, who uh, was uh, kicking her in the stomach trying to make her abort. And uh, by miracle of God, she didn't. And their son is now 35, six years old. 36 years old this year, in fact. Uh, so for about the 10 or 12 years that they were married, she was physically abused by her husband. I know that from experience. I was there to pick her up at her apartment for many of those times to get her out of that situation only to have her go back. And again, we'll see that cycle here in a second. And you're obviously going to talk about it as well. Um, I'm also a... Uh, I'm also aware of uh, physical abuse toward men in that my brother was physically ab abused by his wife. So both, I can, I've seen both of those. Uh, well, he was in the military, interestingly enough. Um, her form of abuse or one of her form of forms of control was to say to him, and you better not tell anybody because if you do, I'm going to report you to your superiors and tell them that you're abusing me. So he was held under that... Uh, sort of a threat all the time. Uh, I've been a police chaplain for over 25 years and have witnessed uh, domestic violence in many, many instances. When I'm riding with the police officers and you get the call to a domestic disturbance, immediately you get in your mind, you're going to see a man beating a woman, you're going to arrest a man. And many times when we got there, we ended up arresting the woman because she was beating up on the man. So again, I've seen both of those sides. So we come from, from that background and experience. Uh, I'm also a psychologist, a marriage and family counselor, and I've had to deal with that. So the, the, in, in educating people about the cycle of violence, the first thing that we try to tell them is to picture a clock, kind of like that because the cycle of violence is predictable. Uh, it kind of follows a pattern in, in general terms. And so the first thing that we tell them, unless you want to say something first. No, I, I think what you said is very important, that for many victims, just understanding that there is a cycle, that it will be repeated unless intervention takes place. Just understanding this concept is enough to make them aware where are they currently in the cycle? And what's coming next? And yes, then they can look back throughout their relationship with this individual and see that this pattern has been repeated. And just understanding this very often will help them get out of the situation they're in. So as we're working with victims we or with uh, pastors, with churches, and, and by the way, that's another reason for doing what we do. Uh, when I was a ministerial director at a conference, a lady called me from a church to say, Pastor, uh, my husband has been uh, abusive toward me and my children for the last 15 years. Uh, now at the conference level, we don't normally take care of every single problem that happens in every single church. It's just, it, it's just impossible. That's why we have representatives at every church. We call them pastors. So my first question is, well, did you talk to your pastor? And her response was, I did. Okay, so what did he say? His response was, sister, we need to pray because he's an elder of the church. As if to say, we can't do anything about it and certainly we can't remove him. He's an elder of the church. We would lose a leader in the church if we did something about it, so we need to pray which is one of the saddest things for me to hear that a pastor, instead of supporting the victim, 
ended up in more ways than one supporting the abuser. And so again, as we present this to pastors, we try to encourage them to learn the cycle, the pattern, and also to take steps as a pastor and as a church to look after the victim, not so much after the abuser. Now you can minister to the abuser, obviously. You don't wanna just say, so long, farewell. But the first, the most important, the critical aspect that pastors need to look after, the people that we, that we need to look after is the victim. And it's not just the abused spouse, but the children, who of course could end up repeating that cycle. So we'd like for you to look at this face of a clock. Just imagine the cycle as a clock, and that makes it very easy for our folks to understand. And look at the three o'clock hour. On your uh, notes in front of you, you may want to draw a clock face. The three o'clock hour is what we refer to as the honeymoon phase of this cycle of, of domestic violence. Now, the honeymoon phase is wonderful. It's just what the name implies. You're on a honeymoon. Things are wonderful in the relationship. I may be getting flowers every day. I may be getting cards. I may be getting chocolates or dates out. The, he's very attentive to me. I like this phase. This is the phase where really confuses the victim because he or she imagines their whole relationship right here. And when violence happens, they refer to this, this cycle, this section, the three o'clock hour. But there were really good times. We did have good times in our relationship. I remember the time when, and they refer to something that's happened during this honeymoon phase. It's this phase right here that is so confusing. And this is the phase that keeps our victims in the relationship. It keeps them going back because of the good times. Not every time is bad. Not every moment he's hurting me, he's abusing me, he's yelling at me. There are the fun times. There are the times that I wish would go on and on. This is what I dreamed of. This is my little house with a rocking chair on the porch with the white picket fence in front. It lands right here at 3 o'clock on the face of the clock. So abuse has already taken place. Now the goal of the abuser is to reconquer, so to speak, the victim, to, to, re, to win her love again, because he doesn't want her to leave. He doesn't want her to, to have to report him to the police. He doesn't want her uh, telling anybody. He doesn't want her telling anyone at work because he could lose the job. So that's why he will do everything in his power to win her back. That's why, again, he brings her flowers and he brings her chocolate and he does all those wonderful things to win, to win her back. This is also the phase where he may pull out the wedding pictures. He may pull out the family pictures. And the abuser may remind the victim, look here, look at this picture. We're happy here. We had a good time here. And so all of these warm memories are just flooding you during this phase. Think for a moment. What if the man is the one that's being abused? What do you think she does to win him back? 
could be. What about fixing his favorite meal? But better yet, the best thing she could do to win him back. That's it. So now he's having the best sexual experience in their married life. Why would you want to, why would you think about leaving this woman who's now awakened to a wonderful intimacy like they never had before? See, so the dynamics are the same. The, the, uh, the, the bribery, the, the gifts, all those things are different because, you know, if, if my wife is abusing me and she brings me flowers, <laughs> you know, chocolates, those things don't matter to me. But those other things do matter to a man. And see, as humans, we want to focus on the positive. I don't want to think about the bad. That hurts too much. It's easier for me mentally and emotionally if I focus right here on this phase. Because this is where I want to be. This is the feel-good phase in our relationship. So now the bad times are behind us. Everything has come back to the way it should be. And of course, he makes those promises. It's never going to happen again. I am very sorry. He cries. He, he throws himself at our feet. And so she feels, wow, we finally turned the corner. It happened. It, I know it's happened before. And he has promised before. But I think this is the time. But then 6 o'clock comes. Now, 6 o'clock is not so bad either, actually. It's what we call the normal phase. I may not be getting chocolates every day. I may not be getting all the little niceties and the tangible gifts from him. But you know what? We've just kind of settled down into this normal, good relationship. It's not bad, really. No, it's not bad. I'm, I'm not being abused. It's, it's just, we're just like the couple next door or the couple down the street. Life is still good. And if I could be anywhere between the 12 and 6 o'clock phase, anywhere in that cycle, I'm okay. I mean, I'm you, can't, you can't be in a honeymoon forever and ever. But at least we have a good relationship. Nothing is happening. We're good. We're good. But then when we move to the nine o'clock, then the tension begins to rise. And she knows something is not right. Something is about to happen. You can feel the tension. Uh, it's like walking on eggshells. You don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know what you may say or not say. You just know it's going to happen. And so there's this, oh, there's this worry, this constant concern. And we're going to talk about some of the, the dynamics that happen at that time, too. Because among them, she thinks, okay, if I'm in, in the garage, the abuser will find whatever is at hand to throw at me in the garage. He might throw a tool at me. That hurts. If I'm in the kitchen, he may grab a knife. So where could I be where it's safe? Well, maybe in the living room because maybe he'll throw a pillow at me pillow doesn't hurt as bad, right? Maybe he'll throw a book, but a book doesn't hurt as bad as a knife or a tool. So she begins to sort of think, okay, so wh where can I be when it, when it happens? Because I know it's going to happen. Just don't know exactly when. I don't know. I have to be very careful about what I say. But if I don't say anything, 
he'll probably be upset. You see? So it's, it's that constant worry that no matter what I say or do or don't say or don't do, it's going to happen. So then what do I do? So you see what the victim is doing? He or she is now taking responsibility. You know, I might say the wrong thing to make him or her explode. I might do the wrong thing. And so I am going to do everything I can to prevent the explosion. Once again, that's, that's, the, whole, that's the whole confusion in this cycle of domestic violence. I was wrong. I caused him to blow up. I caused him to, to be violent with me. It wasn't his fault. Another, another misconstrued fact. And it's interesting and sad that there are still a lot of people who feel that way. There are a lot of pastors who would feel that way. What did you do to make him? Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, I'm sure, I mean, when he comes to church, he's so nice so polite, so friendly. Everybody loves them. So it must be your fault. You must have said something. You must have done something. So you re-victimize the victim. Isn't that usually our first question? If someone says to you or to any member of your church, if they finally get to the point where they're willing to confide and trust somebody, if they said, you know, my husband or my wife beat me up last night. The first question is, what did you do? What happened? Instead of our first response being, there's no excuse for that. That is wrong. Typically, our first response is, well, what happened that caused it? In other words, what did you do to cause the outburst? Not too long ago, at the office, a lady called, you took that call, and it was a pastor's wife who says, on Sabbath morning, before we leave for church, he kicks me on my rear and says, now remember, you need to behave like a pastor's wife. A loved pastor, who would ever imagine? So again, if the question, or if you're aware of that, a lot of people think, well, if he's a wonderful man of God, then it must be her fault. She drove him to do that. In other words, why is he telling you to behave at church? What do you do? What do you do at church that he doesn't like, that makes him upset, that makes him kick you every Sabbath before you enter the sanctuary? So... The honeymoon phase, then the normal phase, and the rising tension phase, and of course we get to 12 o'clock and it's the explosion. Now it happens. He beats her up. He pushes her against the wall. He chokes her. He yells at her, throws her on the ground, kicks her, and you can think about all kinds of different things from just shoving her aside to hitting her so, so bad that she ends up in the hospital. And abusers, the more, the more they do it, the more they know where to hit the person so that nobody else will see. You know, they talk about the, the bathing suit area. Uh, you know, if I hit her in the face, they're going to see the bruises. But if I hit her on the stomach, no one's going to tell. How would you tell? How would you know? 
And so they get to know where to do it and how to do it so that they don't leave the evidence, so to speak, behind. But it happens anyways. The explosion takes place. And guess what? After the explosion, the false honeymoon begins. And then the normal. And then the rising tension. And it continues that predictable cycle on and on and on. And you know what he also does during this phase? During the explosion? Even very often while the abuse is taking place, he uses the victim blaming statements. If you would have had dinner on time, I wouldn't have had to do this. Well, it's always the victim's fault anyways. If you would have, then you wouldn't force me to doing this. You made me. So there again, that, that thing that, that he or she is hearing over and over again Really, throughout every phase of this, it's my fault. I caused this. If I could only get everything perfect, if I could only do everything right, then I wouldn't have to endure these beatings or this abuse. And of course, if, if they hear it from somebody else as well, then it's reinforced. If I go to church and tell the pastor, and the pastor says, what did you do? Then it must, must have been my fault. Then I tell my friend, and, and she says, well, why don't you leave? It is my fault. See, so it lessens the willpower of the person who, instead of being empowered to leave that situation, is forced to, in more ways than one, remain in the situation. There's also something interesting that happens between the explosion phase and the honeymoon phase. With all the other phases, they just kind of slide into each other. It's kind of like a, a subtle sliding around the face of the clock. But between the explosion and the honeymoon phase, it really almost happens immediately. As soon as the abuse takes place, as soon as the hurt takes place, sometimes as soon as the police are gone from the driveway, then all of a sudden it's the honeymoon phase. I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. It'll never happen again, I promise. And once again, that honeymoon phase feels good. Well, he really didn't mean to do it. Maybe it won't happen again this time. Maybe that was the last time. And there again, out come the pictures, out come the warm fuzzies, out come the niceties. Now, one thing about the cycle that uh, is so disturbing is that the cycle continues to be repeated unless there is some sort of intervention. If the person leaves, they get killed, they are, uh, the abuser is carted away to jail, you know, a number of interventions. Although abuse doesn't, or at least abusers don't seem to be, uh, to be able to receive the right um, help to stop the abuse, so to speak. But the, the cycle is repeated over and over again. Uh, it, it is predictable. Unfortunately, it also speeds up so that it may only happen once every two years at first but then it starts happening once a year. And then every six months, every three months, every month. And some have said, some have reported that couples go through the cycle 10 to 12 times a day. The same cycle, over and over again, unless there is a break, an intervention, something that stops the cycle from taking place. And part of the education process that we need to do with our members is helping them understand you cannot freeze the cycle. 
If you could freeze it anywhere, well, my choice would be between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock, somewhere between that honeymoon phase and the normal phase. You just want me to keep bringing you chocolates and flowers. That would be wonderful, that. especially the chocolates. Yeah, you you can keep the yeah, flowers, but yeah. I'll take the chocolates. Mm -hmm. But you can't freeze because the, just like the hands on that clock go around and round and 12 o'clock will come, so will the explosion phase. And for some of our victims, that simple illustration of the hands of a clock is just so eye-opening to them and so revealing. And actually, it's, it's very freeing for them to finally come to the realization of this cycle because they can look back and see how that cycle has been played out in their life and finally come to the realization we need intervention. I need to take a step here. So what happens then? How do we break the cycle of violence? What can you do? That's, that's where really wanna, we want to get to right now. Well, obviously, the first thing is to call the police. And uh, to me, I know that we, we sort of reject that idea. You know, do we want to get the law involved? Well, if there is no drastic intervention, again, it's probably not going to stop. I remember as a pastor in uh, a church many, many miles from here, getting this lady who called me, a member of the church, to say, Pastor, my husband beat me up last night. And my response was, I will help you. But the first thing we need to do is hang up call 911 and then call me right back. Pastor, how can I call the police? It is a violation of your safety, of your well-being. You have to do it. And how can we as pastors recommend that a member call the police? If there is no intervention, the cycle will be repeated. Do you want to have it in your hands? Do you want to have in your hands a victim, maybe a, possibly a dead victim because you haven't done anything? So we want to play the hero. We want to say, well, no, maybe, maybe we shouldn't call the police. Let me see what I can do. Now, unless you are a trained counselor, can you possibly intervene? Even sometimes trained counselors can't help abusers. Do you think as a pastor you're going to be able to do it without the training to do it? So how do you help the victim? So the first thing is absolutely, I encourage you, call the police. One thing that also does the victim finally gets to a point where he or she says, enough is enough. It's like, it's like they're making a statement to themselves. I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. You know, God created me better than that. This is not God's plan for my life, to have someone repeatedly hurt me or hurt my children. You know, that's another thing you can do. Get them to think about the children. If they're not going to do it for themselves, what type of dangerous situation are they putting their children in? And those same children are growing up to eventually become abusers. They're seeing that's how mom or that's how dad handles conflict. That must be normal. This is a normal situation and they will grow up to become abusers. So getting them to call the police and take that first step is one of the most Christ-like things you can never do. Now what happens when you call the police? Well, there's a very good chance that the abuser is going to be arrested. 
which then puts the wife, the victim, and the children in a very difficult position. That's why many times, you know, the police say that's one of the most dangerous calls that takes place because they go to arrest the husband and the wife then gets very angry. Don't, I didn't ask you to take him. I just wanted you to make him stop. But I'm not asking you to take him away mm-hmm. because I don't work. Who's going to pay the bills? Who's going to feed the kids? Who's going to provide us with shelter? which is one of those places where the church then can come in to help. I heard of a church where what they did, because you probably know that one of the things that abusers many times do is to say, you call the police, you know I'm going to be out anyways, and when I get out, I am going to kill you. I'm going to find you. Don't think that you can hide from me. I know where all the women's shelters are, by the way. I mean, all those things that they put in their minds. So what this church did was they took the wife and the kids and brought them into a member's home. And every three days, they moved them to another, moved the family to another member's home. So they, the guy never knew where they were, so they, therefore they were protected. But also, and here's the key, uh, but also they never had to see a women's shelter. Now, I think women's shelter are wonderful. But they're not always the best because you also have different people from different backgrounds. And so, you know, let's say that the wife with the two kids, they're trying to raise them properly. They come, you know, from a good, wholesome family in general terms. And they go there and they have people in the women's shelter. You have people who are into drugs, who are into other violent behaviors. So does she feel comfortable? comfortable being in a women's shelter. So what this church did was to provide them with a home, other than the shelter, but also a place of refuge by taking them from place to place so the man never knew where they were. That's a church that's proactive about helping victims of abuse. Which is, again, then the second point, talk to someone you trust. Obviously, you would expect to to talk to the pastor, the elders of the church, as people that would support you, people that would hold that in confidence. Friends, family, you know, one of the things, one of the dynamics that happens with abuse is that uh, the the, uh, alienation that takes place from everybody else has been happening a little at a time. I remember my sister, my sister was, is still a very capable secretary. She ended up, before she retired, she was a legal secretary in one of the largest uh, law firms in Washington, D.C., for one of the senior partners. She was very good. But yet, he was always, uh, her ex-husband was always saying, you don't need to work. I make enough money for both of us. Why don't you stay home? And so then she would quit, you know, the honeymoon phase, you know, let me br- uh, bring you this, let me give you money to buy things. So she would quit her job, and after that, he would abuse her. Because by then, she didn't have a job. So therefore, she didn't have the option of going out or leaving him to get herself a place. And so, and not only that, but then, of course, the the abusers also would say, or normally say, you don't need your friends. Don't talk to your family. So they are alienated from everybody else. No wonder they have to stay in that situation. They've got no one to talk to, nowhere to go, no finances to help them. What is my choice as a victim? I have to stay here. I deserve what I've got. It's my fault. I caused it. I don't have anyone to support me. 
I can't maintain, my, uh, support myself outside of this relationship. But you see the, the dynamics here. That's why they remain in that situation. That's why I said to say to someone, why don't you leave? Well, that seems like the easy thing to do. It's probably the hardest thing to do because you don't have anything else. No support group whatsoever, but talk to someone you trust. Obviously, talk to a counselor. And if you can't afford one, there are agencies that provide counseling at very uh, low, I mean, uh, for a very low uh, figure. I know when I was a counselor in Virginia, it was an agency where some people paid as little as $5 per session. So you can find one of those if possible. I like number four, the fourth thing we can sometimes encourage our victims to do because number four is often the thing that really helps them the most. So many victims say, I don't have a place to go. I don't have a place, a way to support myself and my family. Uh, there are no options. So if they talk to you or finally talk to a trusted friend, you can say, you know, if you were to go, let's think about where you would go and what you would do. Because if they have a plan, then the next time it happens, it's easier to implement a plan that's already in place than to just all of a sudden get up and just, you have nowhere to go, might as well just stay. So get them talking about where are your options to go? What are your options for finances? Really explore that. Um, maybe you can encourage, some of our victims have told us we had a bag already packed. And we'll have those in the list. We so had an emergency bag packed. So let's start with that. Talk about uh, finding a place you can go if you need to leave quickly. And have an idea of how you're going to get there. Because if he's the type that takes the keys to the car at night to make sure you don't go anywhere, then how do you get there? Uh, do you have money to call a taxi or to take the bus? Or, or do you have a friend close enough that you can walk to their place and then they can give you a ride to wherever you need to go? So have an idea on how you will get out of the house. Uh, do you net, in fact, in, in a, I think it was a Sky Mall in, a, in a, the magazine they put in the airplane, they have these fire ladders. And, you, know, you pull over the, the, the window and it's supposed to hold you and all that. That might be one of those things. Do you have one of those? Because if you're on the second floor and he locks you up, how do you get out of the house? You don't want to wake him up. He's in the other room. Uh, you don't want to bang on the door, you don't have keys, so how do you get out? So maybe that's one of those things that you have to figure out, how to get out of the house. The next thing, once again, is to maybe stash away some money. Maybe there, uh, you can have an emergency bag and, and put some money into it. Or if, you, if there's no way you can get money, if he or she is totally controlling of the finances, maybe there are some other options of emergency aid you can go apply to, but just having that all thought out is, is very empowering for you I'll, to leave. I'll, I'll use my credit card. Well, no, because the moment you leave, you'll figure it out and cancel all the credit mm -hmm. cards, so you can't use that. So it's gotta be cash. Well, he doesn't give you money to use. Well, sometimes with family and friends, you can get that money again, so stash it away in a safe place where he won't have access to it. With a friend, if that's what you need, so that you will have money available for what you need. You may have to open your own bank account, but don't give them your address because if the bank sends the account information to your house and <coughs> he receives it, guess what? 
you're not going to have that bank account anymore. So make sure that it goes to a different address or that it's not delivered to your home. But you may have to have that because if you are required to have a, uh, a, a, a security deposit in an apartment or something like that, you need to, need to have a bank account. And so if you don't have one, then you can't go anywhere. Again, so that's a thinking in, in your mind. I can't do anything. I can't go anywhere because I can't even rent an apartment. So open your own bank account. And again, plan, plan how you will get away. So if it's in the middle of the night, well, if it's while he's working, uh, if it's while he's with friends, how do I get out of here? The car? But if I take the car, he's going to call the police and say that I stole it. Then I'm in trouble. So let's leave the car behind and see if someone can pick me up or, call or have the number for the taxi cab so that I can call them as soon as it happens. Have a bag ready with some important documents. And also, like, what if you're on medication? What if you think, I can't leave because me or my child needs this medication? Maybe you can have that in a place where it's just easy to grab it and go. So what are some of those important documents? You know, social, social security card, your driver's license, passports, birth certificates, where, uh, marriage certificates, all those things that, that prove to people who you are, show people who you are, things that you need to, uh, medical records, uh, things that you need to maybe have the medical attention that, that, that you need. So all those important documents, keep them handy. Arrange with a friend to have an emergency phrase. Uh, you're talking to a friend, you know that violence is about to happen or has already taken a place and you can't just say, well, yeah, he just beat me up, come help me, because remember, he's next door to you, right next to you. Uh, when I was in a, the pastor of a church in Delaware, talking to one of my members, she said, uh, they live far away from the city, and she said, uh, he would put the gun in my head and hand me the phone and he would say, go ahead, call the police before they leave the station, you will be dead. I mean, what choice do you have? And so, obviously, she couldn't call the police and say, come get me. She couldn't call a friend and said, I'll say, come help me. So maybe develop some sort of emergency phrase so that you can say, you know, it looks like it might rain. Well, it's sunshiny out there. You know, it looks like it might rain. That's sort of the key phrase for your friend to understand, I'm in trouble, there's an emergency. Uh, something is about to happen or something happened and maybe that is the emergency friend for your fr uh, phrase for your friend to call the police to go over there. Or how's your new dog that you just got? And you know your friend doesn't have a dog but that is a predetermined phrase that Depending says I need help. When I was uh, when I was a chaplain in Oklahoma uh, the, the, uh, that department used what is called a 10 coach, you know, 10 1, 10 2, 10 4, 10 8, 10 50, 10 100. 10 100 was a very interesting code because it was the emergency code. So that if they would say, uh, for instance, it was squad 3, 10 100, that police, uh, that police officer had to respond, squad 3, 10 100. If he said, I'm okay, they would immediately send it back up because they knew it was an emergency. It was a code. The code was you have to repeat back whatever the dispatcher says. So if the dispatcher says 10-3 or squat 3-10-100, you have to respond squat 3-10-100. So it's the same thing. How's your dog? Uh, you know, the, the phrase is uh, the dog is sick, and so you have to respond, no, the dog is not sick. If you respond, oh, no, everything is fine, you need to go help or you need to send somebody. Does, my, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 
There's got to be a key phrase that the other person wouldn't understand that it is indeed the key phrase. Again, sometimes domestic violence shelters are full, so have a safe backup plan. And if you have a church, or if you are at a church and you want to provide a shelter with the members of the church, make sure that you already provide that or plan to have that in place so that when the victim calls, you don't have to start calling everybody to see who might be willing to do it, but that you already know tonight you stay here, three days from now there, et cetera, et cetera. So you may have to talk to, uh, or you may have to decide on your own plan in case their shelters are full or you can't find anybody else. Call a local woman's shelter or the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which I believe is still the correct number, 800-799-7233. Yes, that's it. Okay. And it's on, mo it's on my business card and most of those brochures that I gave you, it's Good. on the back of those as well. Okay. Now, some of this sounds silly to us, but we have to understand that to the abused victim, Having a plan is very often what it takes to make them leave. I mean, we wouldn't think, Claudia and I would not think of, I've got my separate bag here of, you know, my passport, my documents, my medicines that I take. It's just, it doesn't fit into our paradigm. But remember, you don't live in their world. And what keeps them is not having a plan not having a safe place to go, not being able to provide for my kids. Providing for my kids is number one for me, even if it means I have to get beat up. So making those arrangements and making that plan is going to be what forces me or helps me take that step I need to get help. So it's an enabling of the, of the victim, empowering of the victim, not enabling. Uh, notify the, the school authorities or school counselor because obviously the kids are probably not going to be in school tomorrow because in fact you can't take them there. He might be waiting for you. Or to let them know that I've got the kids so that when he comes to pick him up or to take him, they will know that they're not being kidnapped but rather that it's just a result of abuse. So it's important that you report that to the school authorities. Keep your communication private. Now this is a challenge, especially nowadays, but the telephone conversations, because obviously in this uh, technological age, the, the calls can be traced, text messages can be traced, email messages can be checked into. And so keep the telephone mm -hmm. conversations very private. I can take his phone right now and I can look at the history. I, I know who he's called. I know how long he was on the phone. I can tell you the internet sites he's looked at. I can tell you even the images he's viewed on the internet. All of those things make it very easy for someone who's controlling to kind of keep an eye on, on their spouse. If you have a, a landline, avoid making long distance phone calls from home because again, it's just a matter of getting that information from either a bill or the phone company. And so if you've been calling, you know, mom who lives in Arkansas, He's going to get the idea, okay, so they're already planning something. Or, you know, there are three calls to Texas. I don't know who lives in Texas, but it's kind of interesting. I wonder if it's a friend or some sort of plan. But by having the phone number, at least I know where they live, and so I could trace them back there. So keep all that information, again, private. Be cautious when using a cell phone. Again, clear the history, clear the uh, call messages, and all those things to make sure that they are not traceable at all. 
And be aware of controlling uh, use of your, uh, be aware of controlling the use of your cell phone. Again, it's in, in, in some ways similar. If he controls your use of the cell phone, then you know that, that uh, he's probably already checking to see how uh, to trace you back. Where else can you get help? <clears throat> and I'm glad to know that <clears throat> you have some of that information already there in business cards and brochures. Obviously, your doctor or hospital emergency room. Uh, they are by law obligated to protect you anyways. And so you can talk to your doctor, tell them what's happening, go to the emergency room, they have to report it, have to record it, have to have all the evidence, pictures taken, the police reports, et cetera, et cetera. The local, local women's shelter or crisis center is one other place. The counseling or mental health center, another place that would be of help, and the local court uh, so again, they can file a report, they can keep all the evidence, because what happens many times is you, you think, well, I don't want this to go out there, so you don't tell anybody, even though it's been happening several times, and finally one day you decide to report it and say, well, this has been happening so many times, but there's nothing reported. Whereas if there is a record of the different reports you've made, the different times you've called, then they know that. Good, thank you. So those are the kinds of things that you have... Uh, uh, oh, and your church, obviously, so that, again, the pastor, and I would hope the pastor keeps record of those things. At such and such a time, she called and told me these things. I saw what happened. Uh, she didn't want to do anything. You can't force a victim to do anything, but at least you have record of those things that have been taking place, and you saw them as well. Okay, we're going we're gonna to stop there because I know you're going to also talk about those things tomorrow, recognizing uh, some of the signs of abuse. Uh, but uh, but we will stop here and and allow you to ask any questions if you happen to have any. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons please visit www.audioverse.org.